Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch vertical speedway. And it's your last chance to get more fun for less with our limited-time bundle for just $49.99. Get admission, parking, and all-day drinks for one low price. But you better hurry, because this limited-time bundle ends June 30th. Save now at cedarpoint.com. Israel begins what it's calling the second stage of its war with Hamas. Ground operations in Gaza intensify, the humanitarian crisis deepens, and the world braces for what comes next. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan is here with The View from the White House, and he's coming up first. Plus, meet your new House Speaker. Mike Johnson goes from backbencher to the top spot in the blink of an eye. And the closer you look, the more concerning things get. And later, gag orders, immunity deals, and guilty pleas put more pressure on Donald Trump as his adult children prepare to testify this week in New York. Andrew Weissman and Neil Katiel are here to discuss what feels like an inflection point for the four times indicted former president. It's been three weeks since Hamas terrorists unleashed their devastating and deadly attack on Israel. Three weeks since over 200 people were kidnapped, many of them women and children. Three weeks of a humanitarian crisis spiraling out of control for the people of Gaza. And now the Israeli Defense Forces confirmed that they have expanded their ground operation over the last couple of days. New video released by the IDF, seen here, shows ground forces on the move inside Gaza. And over the past few hours, we've continued to hear explosions and see smoke rising over the skyline. The Israelis have specifically not called this the official ground invasion. But regardless of what they are naming it, NBC News reporters in the region say this is the most sustained bombardment they have heard to date. The continuous airstrikes are not only destroying tunnels and buildings, but also the flow of information. Service is now gradually being restored after internet and cell phone service was knocked out across much of Gaza yesterday, largely severing over 2 million people from communicating with the outside world. The World Health Organization just reconnected with its team in Gaza after losing contact yesterday, saying that the blackout made it impossible for ambulances to reach the injured. This is all just the beginning of what will likely be a prolonged and bloody military operation. And as Israeli forces continue to push in with the broad goal of eliminating Hamas, major questions remain about what happens to the innocent hostages and civilians who are trapped inside Gaza. Along with the people being held captive, scores of civilians are trying to get out, including hundreds of Americans. Many of them are still stuck along the Rafah crossing, crossing, border crossing, unable to leave weeks after being told it would be open. Aid has trickled in, but food and water remain scarce, and the lack of fuel is making it increasingly difficult for hospitals to continue running and for water filtration plants to treat water, making water harder to access. These photos show Palestinians lined up looking for clean water after a night full of airstrikes and an Israeli incursion in the north. And today we saw yet another sign of the desperation gripping the people of Gaza. Thousands of people broke into the United Nations warehouses, trying to get their hands on food and basic survival supplies. The UN Secretary General said Gaza is, quote, facing a total collapse with unimaginable consequences. And now military action is intensifying on top of this growing humanitarian crisis. Now that some version of the offensive has begun, with so little visibility on the ground in Gaza, I'm left wondering, and I'm sure I'm not the only one, what is the endgame here? 
Just how devastating will all of this be? And what can be done to prevent this conflict from spiraling into a larger war in the Middle East? Joining me now is White House National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan. Jake, thank you so much for taking the time this afternoon. I just wanted to start with reports overnight that there is an expansion of the ground operation. Does the administration consider this the start of the ground offensive? Well, we're letting the Israeli Defense Forces characterize their operations, uh, and we're not going to do it for them. These are their decisions. These are their operations. But it is certainly the case that we are seeing an expansion of the effort to get after Hamas, uh, the terrorists who attacked Israel on October 7th, on the ground as well as in the air. But ultimately, uh, while we consult on a daily, even hourly basis with the IDF, uh, they're the ones who are making the calls and ultimately making the characterizations for the operation. I know you're in very close touch with them. There, there are also reports that Israel's phased approach to date aligned with suggestions from Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin, you probably others. From what you've seen so far and what you've, what you've heard from them, does this align with what U.S. officials have been suggesting? Well, you'll understand that uh, I, I have to keep the advice and counsel that we're providing to the Israelis private uh, because it can be more effective that way. But what I will say is that we had over time asked the same hard questions of the Israelis that we would ask of ourselves in an operation like this. What are the objectives? Are the means matched to the objectives? How are you going about this? And critically, how to deal with the fact that Hamas is holding civilians as human shields, is hiding among the civilian population, which creates an added burden for Israel, but does not lessen the need for Israel to distinguish between terrorists on the one hand and innocent civilians who deserve protection on the other. So those are the kinds of questions that we were posing, the kinds of conversations we were having. And those don't stop simply because we've entered a different phase here. We will continue to ask those questions as we go forward. Well, of course, as you mentioned, I mean, hostages are front and center, some of them Americans, many foreign nationals. Prime Minister Netanyahu told the families of Israeli hostages that the more Hamas is under pressure from this military campaign, the better the chances to release the hostages. That seems to conflict with the private suggestion that they delay their operation to have more time. So do you agree with his assessment? Well, here's what I believe. I believe that there still is an opportunity to get those hostages out. And it is the highest priority the president has to get Americans safely home and to help get all of the hostages out, Israeli, foreign nationals and Americans. And so we are continuing to stay in very close contact with Israel and with foreign partners as negotiations continue to try to secure the release of those innocent people who are being cruelly and criminally held by Hamas. And we will not rest until that happens. We are going to continue driving forward to ensure their secure, their safe release, like the two Americans we were able to get out several days ago. So the conversations with the Qataris and other third-party countries then are continuing even as this ground operation is stepping up. The conversations are continuing. Uh, and as I said, we are not going to let the conversations lapse because we're going to insist on continuing to use every avenue to try to secure the release of the hostages, even as military operations continue. 
There were reports over the weekend that Internet and cell phone service was largely knocked out. It seems like some connectivity has been restored. What is the White House's visibility into Gaza right now? I mean, so many people don't know what's going on. Do you have an assessment of what it looks like on the ground, civilian casualties, food, energy, other situations on the ground? Well, we draw from a variety of sources to gain a picture of what's happening on the ground, but it is not a complete picture. We, of course, don't ourselves have personnel there, and Hamas is also blocking access to many parts of Gaza to anyone, including the Red Cross or journalists or others. So there are limitations in our visibility. We do have some sense about the aid flows in. We do have some sense uh, about uh, the rough number of hostages being held, for example. But like I said, uh, we don't have a perfect picture of what is happening in Gaza. We do feel strongly that the restoration of that communications was a critical thing because aid workers need to be able to communicate, civilians need to be able to communicate, and of course, journalists need to be able to document what is happening in Gaza to report it to the wider world. So that was something that we cared about, worked on, and we're glad to see that restoration. One of the areas where there's very very little visibility is this question of the hundreds of Americans who can't leave Gaza through the Rafah border crossing. You've said before previously to me and others that it was Hamas was at fault. But what are your options at this point for, for getting those Americans out through that border crossing or another means? Look, this is a situation where the Egyptians have said uh, they're prepared to allow foreign nationals to come out, including Americans who are stuck in Gaza. Uh, the Israelis have said they have no issue with Americans and other foreign nationals coming out. Hamas has not permitted their exit and has made a series of demands. Uh, we are working through that with the Egyptians. We are working through that with the Israelis. And just the same as it is the highest priority for the president to get the American hostages out, it is the highest priority for him to get those American nationals out. And we're not going to rest working through these difficult discussions until we achieve that. It's something I was on the phone late last night working on, something the president will be working on today in conversations he's having with regional leaders. And we will continue to pound away at this problem until we've gotten any American who wants to leave Gaza out. What are the demands that Hamas is asking for? It's a fair question. Uh, you'll understand that as we work through a delicate back and forth to try to secure the release of those American citizens to allow them to leave uh, through the border crossing, that I'm, I can't get into the details of that, but I will just tell you that it's something that we're actively working. And what would you say to the Americans who are waiting, who are waiting to depart? What is the timeline or what can they expect in terms of when they might be able to leave? What are you hoping for? Well, dealing with uh, Americans who have been detained in various places overseas, uh, held hostage or trapped in places, I have learned uh, to be straightforward and to say we don't know for certain when the moment will come when that gate opens and they can leave. All we know for certain is that we're doing everything in our power to get it open and to secure their safe passage so that they can get home, they can get to their loved ones. We're going to keep working at that hour by hour, day by day, until it happens. There have been reports of around 80 trucks passing through the Rafah crossing, but a, a major concern is, of course, still the lack of fuel. And Israel has an understandable concern about how that fuel could be used. But without it, hospitals and clean water in Gaza are compromised. Is, is the administration pushing for fuel to move through to Gaza as well? 
Well, first, Jen, the reason those trucks are moving is because of President Biden's leadership. He worked very hard to secure the opening of that crossing for humanitarian relief. He also said this past week that there needs to be more, that that flow of trucks needs to increase and increase substantially so that there is enough food, water and medicine to get to innocent people in Gaza who are badly in need of it. On fuel, the question that you asked, the president has also made clear that he believes that fuel needs to get first to the U.N. trucks that are distributing this aid around the country, and then second to critical infrastructure like hospitals, and that we should work out a way to get fuel to those places uh, so that Hamas can't divert it, steal it, or use it for military purposes. That's what we're working on right now. We're working hard with the United Nations, with Israel, and with Egypt to make sure that fuel gets where it needs to go and doesn't get into the, Haman, the hands of Hamas for military purposes. Uh has Israel expressed an openness to fuel coming through? Well, Israel has raised this concern about diversion, but it also has acknowledged that fuel has to get to the United Nations. And so uh, they are working on a practical basis for how to make that happen. And we have an expectation that fuel will get to the UN and other critical relief agencies so that the necessary humanitarian assistance, the necessary support to innocent Palestinians in Gaza is assured. Before I let you go, I wanted to ask you about this end game for Israel. I mean, they've talked about the desire to set up a security state. Uh, do you have an understanding of what that means? Is that a, an end goal the United States is comfortable with? And have you seen anything to date that is concerning in terms of how they've run their operations? Uh, it's hard for me to characterize what exactly Israel has in mind as we l look out over the long term. What I can do is characterize what the United States has in mind, because I think President Biden spoke very eloquently to this in the Rose Garden, standing next to the Australian prime minister this week. He said we can't go back to October 6th. And that means that Hamas can no longer threaten Israel from Gaza. But it also means that we need a political horizon for the Palestinian people where they have rights, security, and dignity in a state of their own, two states for two peoples. And that also all of the countries of the region need to participate in that in a way that leads to greater regional integration and stability. That's what the United States is going to work to, toward. And we'll work with Israelis and Palestinians on that. And it is a regular part of our conversation with the Israelis, not just what's happening tomorrow, but what is happening, as you put it, in the end game. We'll continue to stay focused on that. White House National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan, thank you so much for joining me this afternoon. Coming up, Mike Pence on the way out and Mike Johnson on the way up. At first glance, they have a lot in common. There's one key difference that could explain why one is limping out of the race for president and one just became House Speaker. Plus, Donald Trump is now facing the threat of being jailed in multiple jurisdictions because he refuses to stop violating gag orders and the conditions of his release. Neil Katyal and Andrew Weissman join me in just a few minutes. We're back after a quick break. Ready for a new and exciting career challenge? At DHL Supply Chain, you're part of a team committed to creating innovative solutions for some of the biggest brands in the world. We're recognized as a best place to work, where people are valued, supported, and respected. DHL Supply Chain is hiring for a wide range of salaried operational and functional roles. Previous experience in logistics is welcome, but not required. All opportunities, no boundaries. DHL Supply Chain. Apply today at joindhl.com.
Top Thrill 2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Measure that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch Stratocoaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com. Right now, one deeply religious conservative Republican is limping out of the race for president after failing to gain any traction whatsoever. Another deeply religious conservative Republican just ascended to the speakership and is now second in line to the presidency. One of the key differences between Mike Pence and Mike Johnson is, well, Pence refused to go along with Donald Trump's efforts to overturn the election in 2020, while Mike Johnson was a key architect of that plot. Apparently, there is still a place in the Republican Party for extreme Christian conservatism, so long as it's paired with a fealty to the former president. So let's take a few minutes to talk about this new speaker. First glance, Mike Johnson does seem fine, fine-ish. Conservative, yes, but he once started a civility caucus with a Democrat. And I mean, if nothing else, he wears a suit and has glasses. How threatening can this guy actually be? Well, he gave us all a little clue as to how he would govern in an interview this week. I am a Bible-believing Christian. Someone asked me today in the media, they said, it's curious, people are curious, what does Mike Johnson think about any issue under the sun? I said, well, go pick up a Bible off your shelf and read it. That's, that's my worldview. You heard that right. The Bible doesn't just inform his worldview, it is his worldview. In fact, during his first speech in his new job, Johnson suggested that his election as speaker was an act of God. Talk about a bit of a humble brag there. So what exactly has God apparently called on Mike Johnson to do? Well, his views on policy are essentially what you'd expect from a religious fundamentalist. They're more divisive than they are divine. Prior to his election to Congress in 2016, Johnson spent nearly two decades working for the hard-right conservative legal activist group, the Alliance Defending Freedom. It's a group, by the way, that is so right-wing, it was designated a hate group by the Southern Poverty Law Center. The ADF has worked for decades to blur the line between church and state, if not erase it altogether. It's kind of their goal. They've pushed to expand LGBTQ plus discrimination in the name of religious freedom. And they were a big part of the effort to overturn Roe v. Wade. Following the Supreme Court's 2003 ruling that struck down the country's sodomy laws as unconstitutional, Johnson criticized the decision and wrote in favor of criminalizing gay sex. He claimed that, quote, states have always maintained the right to discourage the evils of sexual conduct outside of marriage. Then in 2004, Johnson wrote that homosexual relationships are inherently unnatural, ultimately harmful, and a dangerous lifestyle. You don't exactly have to be a religious scholar to know whether discrimination is a key tenet of the Bible. It's not. And then there is his policy on gun violence. Speaker Johnson wants to talk about anything but guns. In 2016, he actually blamed school shootings on no-fault divorce laws, radical feminism, and legal abortion. It's all quite a stretch there. Then there's the obvious question of how Johnson's convictions square with his fierce loyalty to Donald Trump a guy who has been married multiple times, paid hush money to a porn star, and joked about grabbing women. I would love to know 
what passage in the Bible told Johnson to become one of the most important architects behind Trump's effort to overturn the 2020 election? Which passage? Was it God whispering in his ear to ignore the Constitution and disenfranchise millions of voters? It's hard not to think that Mike Johnson's idea of what America should be is drastically out of line with what America actually is. He clearly envisions a country that's less democratic and less tolerant. And that may explain why he seems more comfortable with the America of the 18th century than the America of today. The truth has been replaced as the greatest virtue in society by tolerance. Well, we're the in inherently intolerant ones who say, wait a minute, life is sacred because we're, we're endowed by our creator. We're certain inalienable rights. We have to stand up for those. Oh, you bigot. Can't you be a little more open-minded? Come on. That's so like 18th century, you know. Well, they told us that if we didn't maintain those 18th century values, that the republic would not stand. And so this is the condition we find ourselves in today. Just holding on to those 18th century values there. The problem with Johnson isn't at all his faith. He's entitled to his personal beliefs, as everyone is, even if they come from the 18th century. But when those beliefs encroach on the rights of others, that's when it becomes dangerous. Whether the rights of gay people, trans people, or the millions of Americans out there who were entitled to have their vote counted. Coming up, Outburst in court, immunity for Mark Meadows, a new plea deal in Georgia, and Ivanka Trump ordered to testify. I've got a million questions for the in-house law firm of Neil Cottdale and Andrew Weissman. I'll ask as many as I possibly can when we come back. This week, Donald Trump stormed out of a New York City courtroom and sent Secret Service agents scurrying after him shortly after he was fined $10,000 for violating a gag order in the civil fraud trial against him. And that wasn't even the craziest legal development this week. In a separate case, you know, the one where the former president is accused of trying to overturn an election, special counsel Jack Smith's team is pushing to reinstate the gag order against Trump that had been temporarily frozen. They cited Trump's threatening message to his former chief of staff, Mark Meadows, who we also learned this week was granted immunity to testify under oath in that case. In that new filing from Smith's team, prosecutors pointed to a federal statute that provides for the detention of a defendant who fails to comply with release conditions. So that's the special counsel basically asking the judge to consider jailing Trump if he keeps threatening potential witnesses. We're still waiting for the judge to respond to that filing. And at the same time, the judge in the New York case has already threatened jail time for repeated violations of the gag order there. It's worth pointing out that Trump's adult children are set to testify in New York this week. What could make him go crazier than that? It's definitely going to incense the former president even further. If his insane weekend rantings on social media are any indication, we could find out very soon just how far the judges in these cases are willing to go to stop him. Joining me now is our in-house law firm. Neil Katiel is the former acting U.S. Solicitor General. Andrew Weissman is the former general counsel at the FBI and a senior member of special counsel Robert Mueller's team. Okay, Neil, so much to cover here. I just want to start with a gag order because I think we're all waiting to see what happens here. Jack Smith has asked for it to be reinstated. Judge Chuckin, uh, to reinstate the partial gag order. When do we expect this to happen, and do you expect that to happen? So it has been a cray-cray week in yeah. Donald Trump legal <laughs> yeah. developments. You're it's absolutely a legal right. term there. Yes, cray, that's cray. the technical legal term. Um, and look, there's two different gag orders. One Trump has already violated, the yeah. one in New York State, in which he's been fined now twice. Mm -hmm. And then there's this one you're talking about at the federal level with Jack Smith. And I, you know, that one has been put on pause, and I think Donald Trump has made the best case of anyone— 
he's witness A for why you need the gag order in effect. Because the moment that gag order was put on pause, he started going and attacking people left and right. And so I think that there's no doubt in my mind that there will be a gag order imposed on Donald Trump. And there's also no doubt in my mind that he's going to violate it repeatedly, repeatedly, to the point where a judge is going to have to confront the ultimate question, are we going to put the former president in jail? And I think there's only one answer to that. Which, what is your answer? Which is you have to. I mean, if he continues this behavior, no other litigant in this country would ever be able to do what he's doing. And judges, I don't care what your politics are, the one thing you understand is if you put on that robe is it's about the legitimacy of the court and about the judicial process. So, Andrew, Neil Neil mentioned the New York case. Uh, In the the New York civil fraud case, Trump was fined $10,000 this week for violating that gag order. The judge previously did threaten jail time, which Neil seems to think should be a part of this. Ivanka, his children are supposed to testify this week. What are you anticipating is going to happen here? And is there anything between fines and jail as the judge is considering options? Well, I I really agree with Neil, and I actually am very concerned that the $10,000 fine, which is the second fine, um, he was already fined $5,000 for the first violation, sends exactly the wrong message, because Donald Trump, as you know, Jen, is really good at power dynamics and getting a signal of what he can get away with and Mm. what lines people are willing to draw. So I think $10,000 in some ways is sending the the wrong incentive. Uh, You really need to do something that is going to cause him to adhere to the judge's rules. And remember, what the judges are concerned about is rhetoric that will lead to violence. Uh, All you have to do is look at the January 6th uh, riots to know that there is that concern. But there obviously are also concerns because you have somebody who has actually been charged with threatening Judge Chutkin uh, and is under arrest for that. So I am concerned that with his children testifying this week, um, with that civil case really going to his brand, as a, you know, alleged billionaire, uh, with it really possibly leading to his not being able to uh, do any business in New York State whatsoever, uh, that he will continue to act out. And I agree with Neil that judges are going to need to really stiffen their spines because they have to worry about the violence that can come from the call and response that the former president is wielding. There was this week was so full. It was cray cray, as you said, just to quote you, Mark Meadows news and Mark Meadows. ABC is reporting that Mark uh, Mark about that. Uh, How big of a deal is it that Meadows reportedly told investigators he did not believe the election was stolen and that Trump was being dishonest? I mean, that's Meadows view, right? It's not reflecting Trump. Uh, How big of a deal is that in the court? It's quite a big deal. So basically, Mark Meadows is President Trump's former chief of staff. So Mm -hmm. the person in the room there for everything, there for everything. And to push to, for the prosecutor, Jack Smith, or for Fonnie Willis to show that a crime has been committed for Trump, you have to have a bad act and you have to have bad criminal intent. Meadows is important to both. Trump's best defense, you've heard it over and over again, is, look, I legitimately thought I won the election. Now, those of us on Earth, too, understand that that's not even possible. But 
nonetheless, that's going to be his argument. Meadows, evidently, according to ABC News, told the prosecutors, nope, Trump himself didn't think he won the election. And that's what Cassidy Hutchinson had testified mm-hmm. before to the January 6th committee. Interesting. Very consistent with some of what we've heard from other people. So before I let you two go, I mean, we, we every week there seems to be a new person kind of folding here in the Georgia case. I want to ask you, Andrew, as you're watching this unfold, Jenna Ellis was this last week, which you've said was a big deal. Why is that such a big deal? And who do you think might be next? Well, just remember, Jenna Ellis has a really different agreement. She agreed to, quote, fully cooperate, unquote, which was different than Chesbro or Powell, who pleaded just days before her. And what she pled to was aiding and abetting false statements made by Rudy Giuliani. So for Rudy Giuliani, this is really a very bad development. So, you know, he is facing continued civil liability in connection with his a D.C. case against him. He is facing um, significant criminal liability. And he certainly, as a former uh, DOJ official, knows exactly what's coming and also his off-ramp if he were to cooperate. Um, so I think that is the thing that I'm sort of very much focused on. But obviously, the Mark Meadows piece, if the reporting is true, is a huge development with respect to Donald Trump's liability. Neil, real quick, who do you think is the next to fold here? So I agree with Andrew. I think it's Rudy Giuliani is the target. The thing to watch just in the next week is not someone who's going to fold, but Ivanka Trump testifying against her husband, against her, excuse me, against her, (laughs) against her father, be compelled by the court. Mm -hmm. And basically it's the old legal adage, you know, those families who commit crime together testify together. All things to watch. We'll talk more about it next week. Neil Katyal and Andrew Weissman, thank you as always for sharing with us your legal wisdom. Coming up as the people of Lewiston, Maine continue to grieve following this week's mass shooting, I'll offer some thoughts of how my of my own about the epidemic of gun violence and where the country goes from here. Plus a conversation with two of the most powerful young voices on gun safety. David Hogg and Tennessee State Representative Justin Jones will join me in a few minutes. Stay with us. The people of Maine have spent the last day and a half grieving together. 18 of their own who were murdered at a bowling alley and a restaurant in Lewiston, Maine on Wednesday night. The gunman is dead. The vigils are being held. And soon the camera crews will leave before inevitably heading to the next community terrorized by gun violence. But that's why it's important not to move on. That's why it's important to talk about and not look away from the tragedy. Because it is not just about a town in Lewiston, Maine. It's about an epidemic of gun violence that is unique to the United States. There have been 574 mass shootings so far this year in the U.S., according to the Gun Violence Archive. Three were killed and more than 40 people were injured in multiple mass shootings this weekend alone. To put that all in context, research shows that there were 19 mass shootings in all of Europe between 2009 and 2015. It's important to note, Maine does not require background checks on gun sales, does not have an assault weapons ban, does not limit magazine capacity, does not require concealed carry permits, does not restrict open carry, and does not have a red flag law. That's not entirely a Republican problem. Maine is largely a blue state, where Democrats control both legislatures and the governor's mansion. It's a policy choice, which leads us back to the gunman. 
He was a U.S. Army reservist and a firearms instructor. His mental health had deteriorated recently and rapidly. He was even hospitalized for two weeks over the summer for inpatient psychiatric treatment. He recently made threats against his military base, which led a sheriff to send a statewide alert to all law enforcement agencies about him last month. But he still had access to his weapons, both those purchased a long time ago and those purchased more recently. Apparently, one guardrail in place did work. ABC News reports today that the gunman tried to buy a silencer for a rifle at a gun store three months ago. The shop didn't let him because he admitted he had been committed to a mental health facility. Had he succeeded in buying it, the gun store owner believes the mass shooting this week could have been even worse because people wouldn't have heard the rifle fired. That's what silencers do. Here's the thing. There are countless people who fit the description of this suspected gunman all over the world. Severe mental illness exists in every state and every country. But we live in the only country that has repeated mass shootings. Only in America is it easy enough to buy and keep a weapon designed for mass slaughter, even as family members and an employer express concerns about someone's mental health. It's the guns. This endless cycle is a policy choice, and it doesn't have to be this way. It's also pretty easy to feel hopeless in moments like this, as we all continue this repeated pattern of just waiting for the next mass shooting in this country to happen, worrying about our kids, our family members. It's easy to feel hopeless as we watch another community join the long list of others that are still grieving and hurting months and years and even decades after a mass shooting happened in their school or their movie theater or their shopping mall or their place of worship. It's easy to feel hopeless. When you have the brand new Speaker of the House saying only prayer is appropriate at a time like this. And now is not the time to be talking about legislation. It's exactly the time to be talking about it, by the way. Luckily for us, my next two guests disagree with that notion. They've been advocates for gun safety since their individual communities experienced mass shootings. March for Our Lives co-founder David Hogg and Tennessee State Representative Justin Jones join me for a big discussion about all of this after a quick break. On this episode of Plant Killers, we'll explore one nation's most notorious fruit and vegetable killer, bad dirt. What makes bad dirt so bad? The answer, the ingredients. But fear not, true crime enthusiasts. This story has a happy ending. New miracle Grow organic raised bed and garden soil. It's made with quality organic ingredients from upcycled green waste like compost and aged bark. Unlike the other guys who can't say the same. Looks like bad dirt's murdering days are over. Thanks to miracle Grow. Join us next time on Plant Killers. Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch vertical speedway. And it's your last chance to get more fun for less with our limited-time bundle for just $49.99. Get admission, parking, and all-day drinks for one low price. But you better hurry, because this limited-time bundle ends June 30th. Save now at cedarpoint.com. The only way anything is ever going to change on gun violence in this country is if the country starts listening to people like my next two guests. David Hogg is the co-founder and board member of March for Our Lives and the president of Leaders We Deserve. Justin Jones is a state representative in Tennessee and both join me now. Thank you both so much for taking the time and for continuing to have your voice out there always. David, I want to start with you. When when a lawmaker is directly impacted by one of these shootings, sometimes they change their tune. We can't always hope for that, but sometimes it happens. I want you to listen to what Maine's Democratic Congressman Jared Golden had to say this week. I have opposed efforts to ban deadly weapons of war 
like the assault rifle used to carry out this crime. The time has now come for me to take responsibility for this failure, which is why I now call on the United States Congress to ban assault rifles like the one used by the sick perpetrator of this mass killing in my hometown of Lewiston, Maine. So, Justin, I know we're having a slight technical issue there. I'm going to take this to you because the congressman also noted during that press conference that he had a false confidence that his community was above this, which I thought was so interesting. Does that kind of thing frustrate you or give you hope? I mean, you must have experienced some of that in Tennessee, too. Yes. um, Well, Jen, first of all, thank you for not allowing us to get into this casual acceptance of mass death in our nation when it comes to gun violence. Thank you for um, not letting the nation just move on um, when 18 lives were taken in Lewiston. Um, what, what is frustrating is that we know that it was an AR-15 that took the lives of three nine-year-olds and three adults here at Covenant in Nashville. It was an AR-15 in Jacksonville, Florida. It was an AR-15 now in Lewiston, Maine. Um, The issue is not just a shooter with a gun, but it's a shooter with access to a military-grade weapon that's able to enact mass death in seconds. Um, We know that there are common-sense solutions that work. That's what's frustrating is that the vast majority of Americans, Republicans, independents, and Democrats are calling for common-sense gun laws like an assault weapons ban that we had in the 90s. And when we had that law, Jen, we know that incidents of these massacres dropped. And when it expired, we saw over a 100% increase. Um, So we know that there's solutions that work, but the Guns Over People Caucus continues to put the profits Mm. of the NRA, the profits of the gun industry over the lives of people and children in this nation. It's such an important point. And and David, I wanted to ask you kind of about some of those laws, because Maine does not have strong laws against gun violence. They don't have a red flag law, for example. And despite this gunman's mental health struggles being well known to both his managers and his family, nothing was done to take his guns away. What's your biggest takeaway from this particular case? And what can be done to stop something like this moving forward in a state like Maine? My biggest takeaway is that we need Democrats who act with courage that not only say that they're going to act on this issue, but actually act on it when they say that they care about it. I was in Maine Just about four years ago, when they passed that yellow flag law, I remember talking with state legislators about why they needed to have a stronger law, why a yellow flag law was not enough. And time and time again, I heard something along the lines of, well, this is Maine, you know, we aren't like other states. This just doesn't really happen here. But now, unfortunately, it has. And now people are dead because of that. I'm actually in Virginia right now campaigning to help elect a gun safety majority in the state legislature, because in Maine, they don't have a state legislature race this year. But in Virginia, they do. And it's coming up in the next week. So if you are in Virginia, vote. You can change this issue. Vote on November 7th, Tuesday, just coming up. And make sure you vote for people who are not backed by the NRA and the Guns Over People Party that want to actually protect everyday people. You know, Jen, I was just talking to a state delegate here who is working on Cole's Law, a law that was created after a four-year-old. A four-year-old picked up a gun in an at-home daycare and unfortunately died in an unintentional shooting. These are preventable deaths that we can avoid. Unfortunately, in Virginia right now, there is no law that requires daycares to make sure if they're at home that that they don't uh, leave their guns out, for example. These are common sense things that don't threaten any irresponsible gun owner in the first place. The reality is, if you threaten to shoot up a high school or if you leave a gun out, by a child, you should be held accountable for that because that is not responsible gun ownership. That is irresponsible salesmanship practices that the NRA and so many industries have been pushing for. But vote November 7th if you're in Virginia. 
As a mother myself, very true, could not echo that more. And the election is a week from Tuesday, as you mentioned. Justin, we all have to, and David kind of alluded to this because our state laws are so important, as you've experienced too, but we all have to have clear eyes about who has power also in Washington right now. And I want you to listen to what the new Speaker of the House had to say this week about mass shootings. At the end of the day, it's, the problem is the human heart. It's not guns, it's not the weapons. At the end of the day, we have to protect the, the right of the citizens to protect themselves, and that's the Second Amendment. And that's why our party stands so strongly for that. That sounds to me a lot like someone who has not experienced gun violence personally. But if you were watching or listening right now, what would you want him to know about what communities experience and why reforms are so needed? Yes. First of all, Jen, I want to let Speaker Johnson know that in my faith tradition, when you put objects above people, we call that idolatry. And when you put the lives of people under money and campaign contributions, we call that idolatry. And so let's not use faith and, and, and false thoughts and prayers to gloss over this issue. Um, let's, 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 let's pray with our feet and hands and signing legislation. And so what, what I want the speaker, the new speaker of the house, because they finally have a speaker to know is that a community like Nashville, this, this mass shooting at Covenant was not the first mass shooting in Nashville. Uh, we had a mass shooting at the Waffle House here. And now we had another mass shooting at Covenant Elementary School, and, and our community continues to feel this trauma and this grief. And it is insulting to grieving communities to try and use religiosity to, to make their pain um, dismiss it and, and to try and, and, and brush it away until the, other, the next mass shooting comes. I hope that Speaker Johnson knows that this is an issue that's supported by Republicans, independents, and Democrats. I've traveled in rural and urban counties, and people are calling for common sense gun laws. In suburban, the wealthiest county in Tennessee, Williamson County, Republicans are calling for common sense gun laws. And so I hope that Speaker Johnson does not wait until a mass shooting hits his community to act, but I hope that he acts according to not an issue of left or right, but recognizes that this issue of gun violence is a moral issue of right and wrong. And history will watch where he stands in this time. History will judge him. His children will judge him. And future generations will judge him because we're sick and tired of living in this world of preventable mass death because of an extreme minority that have, that have hijacked our democracy. This issue of gun violence is a, is a crisis, is an emergency in our democracy where we've allowed a, a, a small a minority to take control of our policies when the vast majority of Americans across political um, ideologies are calling for common sense gun laws to save lives, save lives. That's my message to Speaker Johnson. Save lives and do something good with your time. It took 22 days for you to become Speaker of Congress. Let's let's make sure that it's worthwhile for the people of, of all of this nation um, and particularly the young people, the kids, because gun violence is the number one cause of death of children in this nation right now. It's a very powerful message to uh, hear, for everyone to hear, and a good note to end on. David Hogg, Justin Jones, thank you for your time, your insight, your voice on such an important issue that is a crisis at this moment in our country. And coming up, a very exciting announcement about some people I'm going to be talking to this week. We're back after a very quick break. We're already working on tomorrow night's show, and I'm very excited to welcome back former Attorney General Eric Holder to the program. If only there was some legal news to ask him about involving a certain former president. Plus, I'll be sitting down with Stacey Abrams this week. I have so much ground to cover with her. This will be her first extensive interview about the indictments in Fulton County. I'm also going to talk to her about the 2024 race. And yes, I promise I'm definitely going to ask her about her own political future. You'll see that interview next Sunday right here at 12 p.m. Eastern on MSNBC. That does it for me today. Be sure to follow the show on Twitter, TikTok, and Instagram. We'll be back here tomorrow night at 8 p.m. Eastern and next Sunday at noon. But stay right where you are because there's much more new coming up on MSNBC.
Top Thrill 2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Roger that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch Stratocoaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com.